Well, good morning. My name is Jimmy Funches. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, uh, where we're going to continue our series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Now, as you open up your Bibles, let me just uh, say real quickly, if you've been coming to the Oaks for a while, or maybe you're new, uh, regardless, you may or may not know this, but here at the Oaks, we like to do something called expository preaching. Now, expository preaching is simply whenever the Bible gets to determine what the sermon is about. Uh, This would be the opposite of what's called topical preaching. Topical preaching we don't think is as helpful, uh, but when an expository sermon is preached, Uh, You come to a biblical text, and there's really two things that you're doing. I'm sort of giving you uh, all of my secrets here as a preacher and pastor. When you come to a text, uh, you're looking for what the author intended the meaning the text to be, right? The words have meaning, and you're supposed to figure out what that meaning is. So you explain what the text says, what it means, and then the second part of it is you just apply it uh, according to what the text meant to the original audience. It's a very simple thing, uh, yet sometimes very complex. But whenever uh, you're doing expository preaching, uh, one of the questions is, how do you figure out what to preach on? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to just go through an entire book of the Bible, Uh, Rather than selecting a text sort of out of order, uh, one of the most helpful things to do is to just go all the way through a book of the Bible from beginning to end um, without any sort of stopping, not skipping over things. Uh, And that's what we do here at the Oaks. We've gone through a lot of books over the last five years as we've been a church here in Cincinnati. And uh, right now we're going through the book of Romans. Uh, Now, I love expository preaching. I'm committed to expository preaching. But, you know, there is one thing about expository preaching that you should know. And that's, you don't get to skip over the hard parts of the Bible. Um, you know, there's a lot of difficult things written in the Bible. Uh, if it were super easy to understand, I might not have a job, but I do have a job because there are hard things in the Bible. Um, and so when we're actually going to be coming to one of those hard passages in the Bible this morning. Uh, this is a morning where uh, maybe if I had lesser morals, I would not do expository preaching. I would just maybe skip over. Um, no, I'm kidding. I, I would not skip over it um, because I do believe that God put this text in here for a purpose. Uh, but as you open up your Bibles, I want you to know that every now and again, we do come to a text like this. But when we come to a text like this, our heart posture, our position before the Lord should be to just accept what God says in his word. So that's our goal this morning. This morning we're going to come to Romans 9 and we're coming face to face with the doctrine of election. And this doctrine of election has proved to be a topic of of great debate for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I want to pause here and just note right at the outset that uh, we're coming to Romans chapter 9. Uh, Romans 9 is a part of a larger part in Romans, Romans 9 through 11. And really, Romans 9 through 11 is like the whole argument for Paul in these chapters. And so you'll need to sort of understand all three of those chapters in order to understand part of it. But we're going to cover part of it today, the first half of Romans chapter 9. And then next week, Terry Lee is going to take up the second half of Romans chapter 9. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, there's going to be many of you who leave here today with a lot of questions, maybe a little bit of confusion. Um, And you might think to yourself, man... Uh, That created more questions in my heart than it provided answers. Let me just encourage you to come back next week, and then Terry Lee will answer all of your questions from there, okay? We'll put it on him. All right. But we're not going to get the whole chapter this week. We're going to do half of it. But it bears remembering that God did not put things in the Bible so that we would fight one another. I want to say that right at the outset. Anytime we come to a text that is meant 
for our good and yet we use it to fight one another, that's not a good thing. No, God puts things in the Bible, even down to the very smallest detail, in order that he might reveal himself to the world. And so with that being said, I'm aware of it today that some of you here are just now hearing, oh, the sermon's on Romans chapter 9. Like, can I get out of here? Like, can I slip out? I don't, I don't want to be here for that. I know that that's where some of you are. I know that some of you are here today and you hear the sermons on Romans 9. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Like more than if the Bengals were to win the Super Bowl, you are just ecstatic right now. Some of you are out there, you know who you are. Some of you are giggling about it. That's, that's who it is. But I want you to know that regardless of how you come to this passage, what we all need to remember when we come to Romans 9 is that this chapter is not primarily about Israel. It's not primarily about election. It's not primarily about Calvinism, and it's not primarily about Arminianism. Romans 9 is primarily about God. And God intends to reveal himself to us through his word. So with that in mind, let's read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18 together. God's word says this. Through the pen of Paul, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you're here today, chances are that you've made a promise to someone uh, who, or someone has made a promise to you who's let you down. And you've probably also made a promise to someone and let them down. And I regret to inform you that I'm a part of that group, that I've made promises that I haven't kept. Now, most of the promises I haven't kept, I'll say, are, are pretty, I think, small, insignificant, not all that important. Although we should be trying to be promise-keeping people, but I haven't kept all my promises. But, you know, there is one promise that's a pretty big promise that I made that I, I did not keep. Now, when I tell you what it is, and I am going to tell you what it is, just, just know that there's going to be some explanation, okay? You're going to hear it, and there might be like a, <gasps> but just let me explain, okay? So the promise I didn't keep, I did not, I've not fully kept my wedding vows. Oh, shocking. I have not fully kept my wedding vows. Now, before you think that there's going to be some crazy confession here, let me explain the story, okay? Caitlin and I, when we got married nearly 10 years ago, we uh, took part in the traditional wedding vows, which I would certainly encourage. But we also wrote our own wedding vows, which I might not encourage. It might not be the best thing to do, because that's what I did, and that's what Caitlin and I did. Now, Caitlin's vows were great, uh, perfect, flawless as everything she does. But my vows, they were a little deficient, and so whenever I wrote down these vows, I was caught up sort of just in this young love. You know, Caden, you're there right now, buddy. You just got engaged, <laughs> right? You're caught up in this young love, and you're like, I'm going to overpromise and underdeliver. But you're not thinking about that. And I made a promise in my personal wedding vows to Caitlin that I have not kept and that I maybe won't keep. You see, in the middle of my wedding vows, I said this, to my lovely, beautiful wife right there on the altar in Orlando, Florida. I said, I promise to learn patience and kindness and to put your needs and desires before my own. Now, that, that's all good stuff right there. Let me just tell you, okay? 22-year-old Jimmy was writing good things there. But the next part is where I trip up. I promise to put your needs and desires before my own, even if that means that I have to eat a lot of Mexican food. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I have a very controversial opinion about Mexican food, and that opinion is it's, it's not all that good. I'm, I regret to inform you, it's just not that good. Uh, yes, I, can I get an amen, church? Probably only one, but I just don't think it's that good. The sides need to be improved, like rice as a side, mushy beans, like, come on, we can do better, people, right? French fries exist. Okay, I won't get into it. I know that you're going to cancel me after you hear that, but... but but I just don't think it's very good. But I, I, regardless, I made this promise to Caitlin. And so I was trying to think about, you know, okay, how do I intro this sermon, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking like, oh, I could go with this idea of promise because I think this text talks all about promises. And I was like, Caitlin, you know, have, have you ever made a promise that you didn't keep? Or maybe like, maybe, about, maybe me, like what, when you think about me, what's a promise? And before I even finish, she's like, Mexican food, wedding vows. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's how you feel. Um, Clearly, I have not kept that promise if that's the absolute first thing that came to her mind, that I have not eaten enough Mexican food over the last decade uh, to make sure that I'm putting her needs before my own, even if that means I have to eat a lot of Mexican food. Now, I can argue that maybe it's a little subjective, like a lot of Mexican food for me is maybe like once a month, but that's not the point. The point is, 
The person that I made the promise to doesn't think that I've kept that promise. Now, thankfully, I've kept all the other promises in my wedding vows. Don't worry, we have a great marriage. But I, I have not been fully a promise keeper when it comes to that. And when we look at the book of Romans, we see in the first eight chapters, we see just some of the most beautiful and important truths and what I would say are promises uh, that could ever be made. If you look back through Romans 1 through 8, remember with me where we've been. You see, we first encounter the reality of sin. And Paul writes that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul writes that there is none righteous, no, not even one, and that all of us are sinful, and that's not good news because the wages or the punishment for sin is death. And this all seemingly bad news is then met with some of these verses. We read in the opening chapters that God commended his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that we are justified freely by his grace as a gift and that we have peace with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is all a reality because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul tells us that if we have been united with him in a death like his, how much more shall we be united with him in a resurrection like his? What great news. And yet Paul doesn't stop there. He says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he teaches us that the very Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us and brings about our obedience and brings about all of the goodness in our life. He's reigning in our very hearts. And then from all of this, we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that if God loves us and he predestined us and called us, and if he calls us, he justifies us. And if he justifies us, he glorified us with his eternal decree. And if that wasn't enough, Paul sort of comes this theological crescendo right at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says to us, he says, listen, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not anything that you did this week, not anything that you'll do today, not anything that you'll do next week. There's nothing that can separate you from this love. Like, isn't that the greatest news ever? A couple weeks ago when I preached, I told you guys that you should say amen and stuff. That was an opportunity. Amen. This is the greatest news that the world has ever known. That we were in such dire straits that we were so, so much slaves to our sin and that God interceded and that he shows his love for us, that he sent his own son to die on the cross, to give us promises eternal, to never separate us from his love, regardless of what we do, because we are in Christ. Man, that's good news. So why then does Paul go from all of that good news into this topic in Romans chapter 9? You know, some people say that Paul should have just stopped right there at the end of Romans 8 and just called it a day, put a stamp on that letter and sent it to Rome because it's a good one just how it is. Now, why is it that Paul included Romans 9 through 11 in the book of Romans? Why did God sovereignly ordain that Romans 9 through 11 would be included in the book of Romans? And I want you to stay with me here because this is a very tough chapter. This whole section is difficult. But if you stay with me here, I think you're going to see some beautiful things. Why did 
God include these chapters in Romans? The answer is that in these chapters, Paul anticipates having to answer some potential accusations that arise after the first part of this letter. Now, these accusations might go a little bit like this. If God made all these promises to Israel, you remember Israel? They had all these promises, all these good things. And yet now Israel is cut off from Christ. Then how do we know that all of the promises of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8 can be true for us? God is making all of these promises in Romans 1 through 8. But you might just wait a second and see an opponent of the gospel say, yeah, yeah, but God said the same thing to Israel, and there they are cut off from Christ. So why do you have any reason to be sure of God's promises? The central issue in Romans chapter 9 is, is whether or not we can even trust God. You see, the stakes couldn't be any higher than they are right here in Romans chapter 9. All those glorious things promised in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8. But can we be sure that God will indeed grant to us all of those things? And over these next few chapters, Paul is going to answer those questions. This is why Romans chapter 9 matters. See, Paul did not write Romans 9 and God did not give us Romans 9 so that we would argue with one another. No, Paul wrote Romans 9 so that our trust in God might be strengthened and secured. And so this morning, when we come to Romans 9, you look at these first 18 verses, the main thing that we see is that the word of God has not failed because salvation is based on God's election rather than man's exertion. The word of God has not failed because salvation is based on God's election and not man's exertion. Now, I want to look at this text really in sort of three movements. And I just want to say right at the outset, okay, that you guys are going to have to sort of buckle your seatbelts because this chapter is not easy. This sermon took me a lot longer to write than a normal sermon because the logic and the flow and the depth of theology is just a little bit more than usual. And so I'm just going to say right now, you might be tempted to like fall asleep. You might be tempted to tune me out. You might hear all of these different Old Testament quotations and think like, oh my goodness, I'm just ready for lunch. But please don't do that. Stay with me here. Because if you stay with me here, you're going to be able to see what God has for us in this passage. And it really matters. So let's look at this text in three points, the first being this, Paul's concern for Israel. We see Paul's concern for Israel in verses 1 through 5. These first few verses, I think, are simple enough. Paul begins by sharing that he honestly has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Right at the outset, we learn that Paul does not look at unbelievers and think lowly of them. Quite the contrary. Paul's heart goes out to them. In this case, his heart is going out specifically to his Israelite brothers and sisters, his kinsmen in the flesh, he says right there at the beginning of the text. And you know, this won't be the only time that Paul expresses his deep concern or his deep desires for his kinsmen. You see, at the beginning of Romans chapter 10, Paul says, 
brothers, speaking to Israel, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. You see, Paul is deeply concerned for the souls of his kinsmen in the flesh, and he's particularly concerned for them because they have specifically rejected the Messiah. Now, how many of us have been there? You probably, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know what that feels like. I think of church members right here that are sitting here today, that their mother and their father are rejecting Christ, that they're brothers and sisters, that they reject the Lord. And that creates a deep anguish and a deep sorrow in your heart. You stay up thinking about it at night. You wrestle with it. Maybe you're a parent and you wonder about your child. You know of this deep anguish. You know of this deep sorrow. And that's what Paul's saying here. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that the Israelites, these people that Paul is in anguish over, they had all sorts of special privileges as God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Look at the list here in verses 4 and 5. It says that the Israelites had the adoption. That's referring to God's adoption out of the nation of Egypt and the slavery there. They had the glory. The glory here is referring to God's presence with his people in the tabernacle, that, that the glory of God would descend from heaven and go in the tabernacle, that it would go in the temple. They had that. Other nations didn't. They had the covenants that God made specific salvation-minded promises to his people, to Abraham, to Israel, to David. They had the giving of the law that God gave them the, the Mosaic law that would teach them how to be holy and how to live a good life, that would teach them how to honor the Lord, to atone for their sin. They had the worship. This was the temple and the tabernacle. They, they had these wonderful gifts of God, this opportunity to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, despite their sin. They had the promises that God would make specific promises to a specific people, and they were those specific people. They had the patriarchs that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the promises that were made to them were now their promises through the patriarchs. And then finally, they had the Christ. Do you see that? That the Messiah would ultimately come from Israel and he would come for Israel and yet he was rejected by Israel. This is why Paul has so much sorrow. Paul is in anguish over his brothers and sisters who have clearly rejected Christ. And Paul here is clearly setting out the issue for us. What does this text mean? If the Israelites were given all of these special promises, these eight things that are listed in the text, then why do some Israelites reject Christ? Why is it if they were given all these promises, if they were, quote-unquote, God's chosen people, then why did they reject the Messiah when the Messiah came? And perhaps even more importantly, should that question cause us to then question God ourselves? So if you're sitting here this morning and you might ask or say to yourself, why should I care about the fate of Israelites? Why does this complicated text about Israel matter to me? I live in America in the 21st century. That was a long time ago. I hope you see even in these first few verses that this all brings up the important question of God's faithfulness. Is God faithful? 
Can we put our trust in God? Will these promises that were just listed in eight wonderful chapters of Romans be applied to us? Can we be sure of that, even though the Israelites, as God's chosen people, rejected Jesus? These first five verses are setting up sort of the rest of this chapter. But, but before we move on, I want you guys to just take a second and look at the heart that Paul has for others. Do you see it? Do you see the way that Paul is heartbroken for his Jewish brothers and sisters? I mean, before Christ, Paul used to persecute the church. He himself rejected Christ despite all of these benefits. Paul knew the law better than anyone. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew all of it, and yet Paul rejected the, rejected the Messiah. But you see, God sovereignly intervened in Paul's life and opened Paul's eyes so that he might see and behold Christ. I mean, very literally, if you go back to the book of Acts, that's what happened on the road to Damascus, that Paul's going to imprison and potentially kill Christians on the road to Damascus. And God literally comes down, intervenes right there on the road and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus intervenes in Paul's life and he sees what he wasn't once able to see. So how now could Paul look at his Jewish brothers and sisters with anything except for deep sorrow and anguish in his soul? Much like the 18th century pastor John Newton, who was reflecting on his own sin, on his own depravity, wrote this beautiful quote. He said, I have never despaired for any man since God saved me. I wonder if that's true for you this morning. A sermon on the doctrine of election. Is there anything for the non-believer here? Absolutely. The gospel is here. That God saves sinners. Is that true for you? Much in the same way that Paul had this moment in time where God intervened in his life and brought him to repentance, brought him to faith. Much like John Newton, who says, I have never despaired for any man since God saved me. Has God saved you? Has that happened in your life? You see, Paul very clearly here understands the doctrine of election. Paul understands that God is a choosing God. After all, look back at the Old Testament. God chose Abraham. He didn't choose Lot. He chose the Israelites. He did not choose the Moabites or the Amalekites or the Edomites. God chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. But Paul's understanding of election here, notice, it does not lead him to a cold and apathetic way of living. It does not give him this sort of apathetic attitude toward unbelievers. On the contrary, it leads Paul to have a deep anguish and sorrow for the lost. So if you're here this morning and you have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of election, just like Paul, if you are led to pride, let me just encourage you, that's an inappropriate response to this doctrine. You have nothing to be proud of. You have no reason to boast in this doctrine. It doesn't make you better than others. If your understanding of the doctrine of election does not cause you to have a deep zeal and a deep anguish in your heart for a lost and dying world, then I'm telling you right now, you do not understand the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election should embolden us to greater evangelism, to greater mission, 
It should lead us to humility and a dedication to carry out the commission that Christ gave to us in Matthew 28. That we would take the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what Paul's doing. That's Paul's heart. And it should be ours too. Verses 4 and 5, they display the unique benefits and the privileges that the Israelites experience as God's chosen people. However, it does not follow from this that every single individual should be saved. And this is exactly where Paul goes next. So the second point that we see in our text is God's purposeful election in the nation of Israel. God's purposeful election in the nation of Israel. This is verses 6 through 13. Now you guys write that down in in your binders, and then maybe just take a second and like stretch a little, because we're still going, okay? Don't grow weary in listening, because this is where it begins to get really good. Verses 6 through 13 Paul begins this section by asking the question, has God's word failed? All right, that's a rhetorical question right here in the text. Israel has all these benefits, so has has God's word failed? And Paul answers this question straight away. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So no, Paul says, no, God's word has not failed. But we have to ask Paul, "Well, well, why not, Paul? Give me a reason here. Why has God's word not failed? And Paul, right away, points to the doctrine of election. Paul's saying this doctrine of election helps to answer the question of why God's word has not failed. Do you see that? Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Essentially what he says there is just because you are ethnically an Israelite does not mean that you are a child of God. And then Paul follows this by giving us a couple Old Testament examples. And those Old Testament examples show us that, guess what? The doctrine of election is no new thing. You see, God has been sovereign since the very beginning of time. In fact, God can't be anything other than sovereign. He can't be anything other than sovereign over everything. If God is not all-powerful, if God is not all-knowing, If God is not all-sustaining, then he is not God. That's what it means to be God. And these Old Testament examples display the fact that sovereignty is an essential attribute of who God is. So let me just pause there for a second and say, God is sovereign. It's just who he is. Regardless of whether or not we believe that, it doesn't change the fact that it is who God is. You can believe right now that I am wearing a green shirt, but I am not. It doesn't change that about me. You can believe that God is not sovereign, but that doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign. It's a part of who he is. It's a part of his nature and his essence. For God to not be in control over all things means that God is not God. Why? Because if God's not in control, follow with me here. Stay with me, okay? If, If God is not in control over all things, then that means someone else is in control. And they have power over God. So God has to be sovereign over all things. Otherwise, he's not God. This is an essential aspect of God's nature. It's essential to his being and his essence. Whether we like it or not, God is God. And our opinions of him will not change that. They will not change who he is because God is God and we are his creation. So the question then follows after that. Okay, God chooses people. If God elects people, what makes someone elect? What makes someone 
chosen. And Paul answers that here in verses 6 through 13. He says, guess what? Ethnicity does not make you elect. Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean that you are a part of God's chosen people. I think you could take that same line of thinking and say it about just about anything. Just because you do good things doesn't mean you're a part of God's people. Just because you're sitting here right now does not mean you are a part of God's people. Just because you do this or that does not make you a part of God's people. So what does make you a part of God's people? Well, Paul says here, it's God's mercy. God's mercy makes you a part of God's people. God's grace makes you a part of God's people. And this was true even within the nation of Israel. That's why Paul brings up these Old Testament examples. You see, look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Fascinating scripture quotation right here. Paul makes sure to be clear. It was before they were even born. Before Jacob and Esau had done anything right and before they had done anything wrong. They hadn't done anything. Their accounts are sitting at zero. God chose that the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. And why is that the case? Why would Esau serve Jacob? Just read what the text says. Esau would serve Jacob because God decreed, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Here I think we're tempted to cringe at these words. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? But notice with me, if you look in some of your Bibles, if you've got like a concordance or a cross-reference section, you might see Malachi 1 is quoted here. Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1. And so God obviously didn't make a mistake in putting this in the Bible. He put it in the Bible twice. This idea is in the Bible, in Malachi. It's in the Bible again in Romans. So what does it mean? What does it mean that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? You ready? It means Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. The words mean what they mean. And I understand the impulse to try and like wiggle our way out of that and say, no, no, I don't like that. That doesn't fit with my conception of God. I want to try and wiggle my way out of that and make it mean something different. But friends, the words mean what the words mean. And we can't twist them. We have to submit to them. And how do we know this? How do we know that these words mean that? Well, because God kept a remnant from the line of Jacob, didn't he? Of course, from the line of Jacob comes people that we know of, like Samuel, like David, like Solomon. All these people come from this line. Eventually, Jesus comes from this line. This remnant is kept in that line of people. That's how we know that God loved Jacob, because he set his covenant affection on them. His covenants were still applied to that line. How do we know that God hated Esau? Because God let them go. The people of Esau would eventually go on to become the, what's called the Edomites. And the Edomites and the Israelites would begin to fight each other many years later. And the people of Edom were particularly evil. And the people of Edom were worldly. So that when we come to Malachi chapter 1, what God is saying here, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, He's saying, listen, you see my covenant love has continued with this line, with this people of Jacob. And you've seen it not continue with the people of Esau because I hated Esau. And because I hated Esau, his people went away and I let them do what they would do on their own. And they rejected me. They rejected my law. They rejected everything that I had for them. 
And though they came from Rebekah, they went away from God. So much so that in Malachi chapter 1, God talks about how he is going to destroy that nation because of their evil. We can't get away from this truth that God sets his covenant affection on some and he does not set his covenant affection on others. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, okay, I've waited long enough. Go ahead and resolve this tension for me, pastor. I'm not going to because the tension is there in the text. It's not meant to be resolved. And it just needs to sit with us. And I don't have all the answers. There's a degree of mystery in those words. But God does tell us in this text that all of this takes place. You, you might just say, well, why? Why is it this way? Well, God tells us in this text that all of this takes place in order that God's purpose and election might continue. You see that there in verses 11 and 12? That God's purpose and election might continue. What is God's purpose in election? Why does God choose to save some? Why does God choose to not save others? Well, God's purpose in election is to graciously save some, not all sinners. God's purpose is to save. And that should be another place where we say, amen. Like, I think that we're a little shocked over this text that we forget how meaningful it is that God would save any of us. Not just that, that God's purpose in election, I want you to see this here. God's purpose in election is to graciously save sinners, not based on works that they do, but completely based on God's own mercy and grace. You see, God chooses to save sinners, not based on their works. I don't think anyone here would disagree with me when I say that. But let me just tell you, the doctrine of election absolutely supports that concept and that idea. Justification by faith alone goes hand in hand with the doctrine of unconditional election. Those two things go hand in hand, brothers and sisters. And this has always been God's purpose, to graciously save some, not all sinners. God never claims that he's going to save everyone, but the fact that he would save anyone is indeed beautiful. So we come to the end of this sort of middle part of the passage Maybe a little shaken, maybe a little confused. But let me ask you the question, should you be concerned that God's word has failed? Should we be concerned that God's word has failed because the, Israel, the Israelites have rejected their Messiah? And Paul says no, because God did not choose all of Israel to be saved. When we see Israel reject the Messiah, that's a part of God's plan part of God's plan because Jesus had to come and lay down his life. He had to be rejected for this. God's purpose in election was to save. It meant that he would have to be rejected so that he would lay down his life. Do you see this purpose in election? And this is not a new idea even within the book of Romans. It's not a new idea in the Bible, nor is it a new idea in the book of Romans. If you go back to Romans chapter 3 that we preached on several months ago, Paul says, what if some Jews were unfaithful? What if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. The faithlessness on our part, the faithlessness on Israel's part, does not negate the promises of God. That's what we're taught here in Romans. 
So Paul teaches us of the doctrine of election. He roots it in the teachings of the Old Testament. He shows us that God is sovereign. It is just who God is. Now, I think it would be easy to get so caught up in the doctrine of election in Romans 9 that we forget that the Bible has a purpose for us here. I think that God put this passage in the Bible to show us the character of God. This passage shows us that God, although God is not compelled to save any of us, chooses to save some of us in order that we might experience his mercy and his grace and so that he might receive honor and glory. And so, should we question the word of God? Has the word of God failed? Well, this is a ridiculous question, right? When you take a step back, I know we're right in the middle of the doctrine of election. That's a tough place to be. When you take a step back, has the word of God failed? We should incredulously say, are you kidding me? No. No, the word, is, the word of God has not failed. Well, how do we know that? The, friends, the best place to know that the word of God has not fa- failed is at the foot of Calvary. Know the word of God has not failed because Jesus Christ has accomplished and fulfilled every promise of God to his people. Just because everyone is not saved does not mean that those of us who are saved can somehow experience God's unfaithfulness. No, God has been faithful to us. And if you want an example of God's faithfulness, look no further than the cross of Christ. Look no further than the first eight chapters of Romans. That God is rich in mercy for us and that he saves us. No, God's word has not failed. Look to Jesus. But when we come to the doctrine of election, brothers and sisters, let me just say, this doctrine ought to have a humbling effect on us. The doctrine of election teaches us that we have absolutely no reason to boast in ourselves. And I want to briefly talk to two parties here, because I think that regardless of whether or not you like or don't like election, both sides are tempted toward pride. First, for those of you who would consider yourself reformed, for those of you who would champion the doctrine of election, those of you who affirm it, those of you who are generally happy right now, let me just ask you, why do you love the doctrine of election? Why do you love this doctrine? Do you love this doctrine because it teaches you about God's love? Do you love this doctrine because it teaches you about God's character? Or do you love this doctrine because it makes you feel superior to others? Oh, brothers and sisters, there's such a blind spot for pride for those of us who affirm the doctrine of election. I want to be clear. I think the Bible rightly teaches the doctrine of unconditional election. But God did not give us this doctrine so that we would be prideful. No, God gave us this doctrine so that we would be humble, so that we would recognize that we contribute nothing to salvation other than the sin that necessitated it. Secondly, for those of you who are here, and you might, you might bristle at this entire sermon, those of you who might be a little upset right now with what I'm saying, you cringe at this doctrine. Let me just say, I'm empathetic. I, I was once where you are. I did not like this doctrine when I first heard it. But eventually... I found that the reason I didn't like this doctrine is because it took the control from my hands and it put put the control rightly in the hands of God. 
I just wanted to be in control. For those of you who know me, I'm already prone to that as it is. But how much more do I want to be in control over things that really matter? I want to control my own destiny. I want to control my salvation. I want to control all of this. You see, the natural human response to the doctrine of election is to reject it. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been seeking to play the role of God. Now there's a lot of questions about this doctrine, but before we consider any of them, over the next few weeks, let me just say, if if you're here and you bristle at this doctrine, would you just take a moment to pray? I'm not asking you to submit to this doctrine. I'm not asking you to just change your mind. I'm just saying, would you pray and ask God that he would bring your heart that he would bring your mind and your spirit, not under the doctrine of election, that's not what I'm saying, but that he would just bring it into conformity with his word. I'm not seeking to convince you of any man-made doctrine. I'm seeking to convince you to be biblical. That's all I'm, I'm asking. And so would you ask the Lord, help, help him to soften your heart for truth. Even if that truth means broadening your theological horizons, maybe it makes you change some things about your theology. But as Christians, we have to be careful that we are never slaves to a man-made doctrine, but that we are always slaves to the very Word of God. And the Word of God controls everything that we believe. Well, brothers and sisters, if this doctrine is upsetting you, then I just want you to know that you're not alone. As Paul spends the last part of our passage today responding to the question of God's justice, In our third and final point, we see the justice of God and the doctrine of election. The justice of God and the doctrine of election. Follow along with me here in this logical argument. We sort of move from Paul's concern for the lost, seeing God's election in Israel, and now this sort of ontological question comes up. Okay, if this doctrine is all true, If everything that you're saying is right and true and biblical, if God chooses to save people solely based on His grace and nothing based upon what they do, doesn't that make God unjust? Doesn't that make God unfair? Isn't that just unfair? Brothers and sisters, let me just say this is an excellent question. This is a great question. And Paul responds with one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament. He says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? Does anyone know my favorite phrase? Meganoita. Meganoita. It's Greek. Which means by no means. Never. It's what Paul says in the beginning of Romans 3. He says it in other parts of Romans. He says, is there any injustice in God? No, by no means. May it never be said that there is injustice God. That can never exist that there is injustice on the part of God. God is perfectly just. But, but then we just ask, well, why? Paul, why do you say that? Why is, why is there no injustice on God's part? His doctrine doesn't seem very fair to me. Well, look at verse 15. Again, quoting the Old Testament. Paul says, 
For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul goes on to remind his readers of the example of Pharaoh. Now, if you didn't know that this verse was written about Pharaoh, then you would think it's a good one, right? Maybe something that you would put in a like, nice script and then put on your wall. Look at verse 17. Don't read the first part, but just this, this part. For this, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That seems like something Hobby Lobby would put on a sign that you could hang in your house. But notice who that's written to. It's written to Pharaoh. Did Pharaoh have a good godly end of his life? No, Pharaoh was destroyed. And God says here in verse 17, for this very purpose. For what purpose? For the very purpose to destroy. For the very purpose to drown you in the Red Sea. For this very purpose, I raised Pharaoh up. From when he was a kid, I I raised him up. I brought him through the different political avenues of Egypt. I raised him up so that I might show my power in Pharaoh, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And hasn't that been the case? That even now, some 4,000 years later, we're still talking about Pharaoh. We're still talking about how great God is at saving Israel in the book of Exodus. That Pharaoh's hardness of heart was brought about by God so that for thousands of years we would talk about God's faithfulness to his elect people. Paul reminds us here of the example of Pharaoh. He reminds us that all of this exists so that God's power might be revealed, that God's name might be proclaimed. And Paul teaches us that salvation does not depend on anything that you do. Brothers and sisters, I understand if you have an aversion to the doctrine of election, but let me just say for a moment, this is good news. Salvation does not depend on whether or not you have a good day or a bad day. It doesn't depend on whether or not you make that mistake that you've made so many times before. It doesn't depend on if you missed or made your scripture devotions this week, although all of those things are important. Salvation depends on the mercy of God. Paul says here, it does not depend on human will. You cannot will yourself into salvation. You cannot work your way into salvation or into God's good graces. It depends on God's election. It depends on God's choice. Salvation is not something that you can bring about in your own power. It's not something that you would choose without God's gracious intervention. Salvation from beginning to end is a gift and a work of God. And friends, this is exactly the sentiment that Famous English pastor Charles Spurgeon says, I love this quote from Spurgeon. I don't use a lot of quotations when I preach, but I like this one. This is what Spurgeon said when he was talking to some students about the doctrine of election. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. Isn't this true of us Christians? For I could never find a reason in myself why he should have looked at me with special love. So I am forced to accept this doctrine. Isn't that our experience? In all of this, 
I think that we can be quick to anger. I think that we can bristle at this doctrine. I think that we can become so incensed at texts like Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It does not depend upon man's will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. I hardened Pharaoh's heart. We hear all of these things and we become so incensed, thinking that we are the arbiters of justice in this world and that we know better than God. And we can get to that point that we forget what is actually and truly shocking about this text. You see, the doctrine of election is not the most shocking thing about this text. The most shocking thing about this text comes right at the end of verse 16. You see what it says in verse 16? So then it depends not upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But upon God who has mercy. Do you hear that? God has mercy. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine is difficult, but what's even more difficult is hanging on a cross and dying for sins that you did not commit. Church, the most shocking thing in this passage is not that God has the power and the will to choose those whom he saves. The most shocking thing about this passage is that God would choose to save any of us at all. And that's what has been building up in this entire book of Romans. And that's why expository preaching is so helpful because we've seen this. It makes this more easy to understand when we know that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That we seek and improve our ways of sinning throughout time. That we give approval to those who sin. We are wicked people. And not one of us deserves God's grace. No, in fact, we deserve God's punishment. The wages, the punishment of sin is death. So when we come to the doctrine of election and we look at God and we wag our fingers and shake our heads and say, how dare you not save everyone? That exposes a deep pride in our hearts that we would assume upon the grace of God and demand that God save us despite our vast and comprehensive rejection and rebellion to his love and his grace. The shocking thing about Romans 9 is not that God chooses to save some of us, it's that he chooses to save any of us. You see, salvation for our sin requires a perfect sacrifice, and that's not something you and I are able to give. We're so deep in sin, so very rebellious to God, and yet Jesus laid down his perfect life for us while we were still sinners. Just at the right time, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. The marvelous thing about the doctrine of election is the way that God chose to save us. You see, God could have chosen a lot of different ways to save us, I would imagine. But God chose to send his own son. God chose to sacrifice his own son for us. That's the choosing that should shock us, that God would choose to sacrifice his son so that we might come to faith in Christ by his grace alone. That is what is shocking. It's shocking that Jesus was beaten and mocked for us. It's shocking that his back was split open with a cat of nine tails that was meant to maim. It's shocking that Jesus 
The one who spoke the world into existence was forced to carry a heavy cross up a hill where his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. It's shocking that Jesus hung in front of the entire world in shame. And in all of that, the worst part hadn't even happened. You see, the shocking thing is that Jesus, while on the cross, took upon himself the weight and the burden of our sin. He had done no sin. He who knew no sin became sin in that moment for us. And he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And what's shocking is that for the first time in all of eternity, and the only time in all of eternity, the Father turned his back on his beloved Son. What's shocking is that Jesus no longer felt the presence of his Father, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the fact that God chooses any of us is the real mystery of this text. While we were in London visiting our church partners there at Redeemer's Queen's Park, we took a walking tour that focused on the history of the church. And one of the stops in this tour was the church of John Newton. Maybe you've never heard of John Newton by name, but I can almost guarantee you that everyone here has read something that John Newton wrote. And he wrote a song, a famous song, called Amazing Grace. And you know, this well-known song, we all know it, and perhaps we sing it sometimes forgetting the words. But this well-known song is far too often displaced from its historical context. You see, prior to coming to faith in Christ, John Newton, even when he was a boy, worked on slave ships. He was involved in the transatlantic slave trade, that wicked practice. Not only that, but he invested in it later in life too. He grew up in this evil practice. He worked on the ships Even when he was young, he wrote about a particular time when he was sailing across the ocean from Africa to the New World. And the captain of the ship, in the middle of the night, heard and was awakened by this young baby. This African baby was crying down below deck as they're sort of crammed into the hole of this ship. He goes and he finds this baby in the middle of the night that simply caused him the dis pleasure of waking up. He tore that child from its mother, went above deck, and he threw that child into the ocean. And John Newton saw it. He saw evils and horrors like this on a daily basis. And despite seeing that, things that would shock us, John Newton continued in this trade. He began investing in it when he got enough money. And eventually he became the captain of a slave ship himself. He began to take journeys from Africa to the New World, carrying slaves over ship by ship. But in time, John Newton was met with the grace of God. John Newton came to faith in Christ, and he eventually just completely rejected the slave trade, and he became an avid abolitionist. He worked to see the slave trade abolished in England, And it did, just months before his death. When I think about John Newton, I think about how he probably felt a lot like the Apostle Paul. Paul 
famously persecuted the church. He spent so much of his efforts rebelling against God, rebelling against the goodness of the gospel, persecuting the church, and John Newton participated in the slave trade. I'm just certain that the doctrine of election was so treasured by these men because they knew that without God's electing grace that there would have been no hope for them. Is there any hope for someone who is involved in such drastic evil? I can only imagine that John Newton, even after he became a Christian, felt the guilt of sin, thought about the countless wrongs that he had done. I'm sure it weighed on him. But the doctrine of election isn't about us, it's about God. You see, the doctrine of election shows us that it's amazing that God would choose to save any of us. We are all just as sinful as John Newton. He's not any different than us. We're all just as sinful as Paul. Some of you this week know sin very well. Some of you can look back on your week and you experience great regret for your sin. Even right now in this moment. Does it amaze you that God would choose to save us? See, the doctrine of election shows us this beautiful mercy. It shows us this beautiful grace. So much so that a former captain of a slave ship could write the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch. A wretch who has done inexplicably horrific things. Yet God's grace saved a wretch like me. I was once lost but now I am found. Oh, I was so blind, but now, now I, I see. Church, the doctrine of election is so sweet and so important because if God had not chosen us, we certainly would have never chosen him. So we praise God. We give God the glory and the praise for his choosing to save any of us and certainly for saving us individually and personally. Let's pray together.